Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Yeah. This is the Kern River Fly Shop Podcast. This is episode number 22. And my name is Guy Jeans. I'm your host. And I want to thank everybody out there for listening to the podcast. Frankly, from all over the world, really appreciate the support and all the questions and all that has been fantastic. Um, today, I have one of the 50 most influential fly fishers on the planet, and his name is Simon Gosworth. And uh, I'm really excited to have him. We're, we're going to talk to him here in a minute. But I want to uh, talk to you guys about his history and you know some of his uh, things that he's done in the past. Um, and just a little bio on, on who Simon is. Um, Simon grew up fly fishing from the age of eight and he was trained by his dad, who is a well-known fly fishing instructor and author. His name's John Gosworth. And by the time Simon left school at 16, he left to teach fly fishing. Um, he had become the British junior casting champion and he repeated that feat the next year. In the following year, Simon broke seven British casting records and won the adult casting championships three times in succession and represented England in two European and one world team championships. Pretty awesome. With the collapse of the British Casting Association and the tournament casting scene in the UK, Simon turned his hand to competitive fly fishing. Over the following year, Simon represented England in three home internationals against Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. Two European championships and five world championships culminated in the prestige of becoming the England team captain and manager for the 2003 World Championships in Spain. In January 2001, Simon and his wife moved to the United States to start working for a new fly line company called Rio Products based out of Idaho Falls, Idaho. Working for then owners Jim and Kitty Vincent, Simon quickly took on the marketing role for Rio Products as well as developing and designing fly, line, fly lines for the brand. During his career, Simon has written numerous articles for the fly fishing press, published three books on spay casting, presented five instructional videos and DVDs, has appeared on numerous television and radio shows, demonstrates casting at fly fishing shows around the world, and is recognized as one of the leading authorities on spay casting and fly casting instruction. In addition, Simon is the host of Rio's acclaimed How-To Fly Fishing video series, as well as the main presenter in Rio's Fly Fishing Tips video series. His relaxed, easy-to-understand teaching and presentation manner is followed and loved by thousands of fly fishers around the world, and you guys will get a taste of that here in a second. He is a f Federation of Fly Fishers International Master Casting Instructor, as well as a two-handed casting instructor, and he's certified in both. He also holds the APGAI and STANIC diplomas for fly fishing instruction in the UK. In 2019, Simon was recognized by the Fly Fishers International with their Lifetime Achievement in Fly Casting Instruction Award. That's pretty amazing. Simon regularly gives club talks, shop presentations, casting demonstrations, and teaches fly casting classes around the U.S. Simon lives in southwest Washington and works for Farbank Enterprises Products, which is basically Reddington, Sage, and Rio. He is the education and engagement manager conducting fly casting lessons, hosting trips around the world, which I want to talk to him about, and creating fly fishing edu educational content. So let's see if we can get uh, Simon on the phone right now. All right, Simon, are you there? I'm here. Awesome. Okay, everything's working good. Um, welcome to the podcast. Well, I, I'm, I'm stoked to be on it. Thank you so much for asking me along. <laughs> yeah, thanks for doing it. I really appreciate it. It's been, uh, it's been awesome trying to uh, get this together and 
I'm glad it's finally it's finally happening. You know, one of the the things that uh, people say is that uh, I work a lot, and and then when I I hear about you and your and I read your your bio and everything, I, I'm I'm very inspired. I don't feel like I'm doing enough. <laughs> I I followed you for a long time, mate. I know how much work you put into it, how much you do. So you're endlessly busy. So uh, I just like to. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you right off the bat doesn't have anything to do with uh, fly fishing, you know, which we're going to talk about is, um, you know, since you're you were born in the UK, um, one of the things I wanted to ask you was when you were younger, did you grow up listening to some of the English ska and reggae bands at all? Sure, <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. And reggae, you mean like uh, Red Red Wine, UB40 and that kind of English reggae? And- of course, yeah. Madness and specials and all those kind of scars. Absolutely. Yeah, awesome. I knew it. I knew you did. Just, I was huge in music. Uh, I was a DJ for a long time, so I, I had I had a big uh, interest in music and followed every kind of really? music. Is mm-hmm. that right? And you did that over there? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. That's awesome. Many people do. In fact, I actually have never admitted it. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a special. It's an exclusive. Yeah, absolutely. You you know, what's funny is, you know, as growing up as a younger dude, I, you know, uh, the, the English ska and reggae, you know, coming over from, from there came, you know, to the, the West coast, um, you know, Ventura area was where I was from and I was really heavily influenced by the ska and reggae scene. You know, my, I have a band called the Stoneflies, which is kind of ska and reggae based, but, um, it was really cool, you know, listening to those bands over the years and then um later on in life um i got to play with some of those bands it was really cool and uh Seriously? yeah you know like um dave wakeling and the english beat and steel pulse oh, and and uh all, you know a lot of the bands and they were always so really nice it was really fun it was really fun so well, I wa- there you go yeah i wanted to, i wanted to ask you um do you remember how we met uh i know it's about a show in Pasadena. Oh my gosh. You do remember. Awesome. Yeah, that's yeah, right. That's right, man. Your your booth was right next to mine. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh I'm trying to think what year that was. I I, I would put that at like ten years, maybe nine years. Yeah, at least. You know, and yeah. and I I thought you were pretty uh pretty awesome back then. You know, we were we were sitting there chatting and stuff and you you gave uh, some of my guys some swag and you gave me some swag and stuff, some Rio stuff and everything. I thought that was pretty cool. But we also talked about beer and I know you, I know you like to drink beer as well as I do. And uh, one of my question was um, that I wanted to ask you was what's your favorite beer that you like to drink? Um, well, are you talking about English beer that I, I miss or beer that I can frequently get? <laughs> right, right. Well, either one, either one. Well, you know, there's a, uh, I, I'm a big fan of the, the bitters as they're declassed in the UK or, or cast condition ales in particular. You know, not the gassy things that are cold and frosty, but the ones that are hand pumped up and yeah. room temperature and just so easy to drink. You can just chug a pint without even knowing it's, you know, no, no coldness, no bubbles to react against. So I, I love most of those cask ales, those bitters. Um, uh-huh. You know, Good IPAs, really good IPAs. The, the, the brewing industry in the U.S. has come along leaps and bounds since I moved here because I remember the early days and it was um, just awful, utter awful beers. Um, <laughs> couldn't find, but, you know, they, they, as I said, the IPAs now over here are pretty good. Uh, some of them are very, very good indeed and rapidly becoming a, a great favorite of mine. But I'll still always, if I could find a cask ale that is served at the right temperature and has a nice nutty bitterness to it, a, a brown color, <laughs> not much foam and head because there's no gas. Um, so Wadsworth 6X is, was a an absolute favorite of mine in the UK. Um, Black Sheep, another fantastic beer out of Yorkshire, just an amazing cask ale. So nice. generally that genre of beer um, would be my go-to if I could, if I could uh, select any beer from around the world. Nice. You know, we, uh, in, in my little town in Kernville, we have a brewery called the Kern River Brewery, which has been getting all kinds of awards, you know, over the years and stuff. And they got, uh, I'm, I'm going to send you, uh, some of the beers I was, I was planning on doing that. And, um, I'm going to, I'll get that, that beer sent off to you, but there's a beer called the Citra IPA, which is 
pretty famous and they've gotten awards for. And wow. um, I'll, I'll send you uh, uh, some of those for sure. And some of the other ones, the award-winning beers, so you can try them. I was meaning to do that beforehand so we could talk about the beers and see what you thought. But, well, I could have drunk one here with you whilst we talk. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I you, don't have a... I have an energy coffee and I have a Red Bull and I have a can of cider. <laughs> awesome. Because you're busy. So you're, curr- yeah. you're currently the brand manager for Rio still, or what are you doing well, over no, there? It's changed. Um, so there's been a fairly big change in, in the work um, place. So Rio, as you know, but I'm not sure how many people know, is uh, a brand that is uh, kind of owned by this house of brands called Farbank. They own Sage and they have Reddington, they have Rio, they have Flywater Travel. So they um, bought Rio in 2005, a long, long time ago. And all that time, up from then until last year, I, I was indeed the brand manager at Rio. Mm-hmm. And that was my focus. It's now changed. Uh, I've moved into uh, a role that is right at my street, I think. Uh, it's still a new role, so I'm finding those boundaries and the parameters and what my expectations are but it's uh education and engagement manager for far bank so uh, basically uh, okay. anything to do getting people into fly fishing getting people excited about the sport educating people to be better at casting and fly fishing to have more fun fly fishing kind of anything it's in a, kind of an open description but really yeah but it just boils down to what is right up my alleyway which is just making people enjoy fly fishing uh, you know games and, and education and talks and whatever it is uh, and dropping behind a lot of the brand manager stuff that i really wasn't a fan of uh packaging design and websites and catalogs yeah you know that true marketing stuff advertising all that stuff i had no clue i, I was a trout <laughs> bum, a fish bum. So right. I'm to drop that stuff and get on to what to what i think is my strength and uh so really excited by this new position I, you're, you've been a, a fly fishing instructor forever and, and, and your dad, from what I was reading, was a fly fishing instructor too. Is, was he like, yeah. the, was he your major influence back, back in the day? Utterly. Yeah. I mean, hard not to, he started the fly fishing school 72, I think it was. So I was, I was eight when he started a fly fishing school. Um, and for whatever reason, I just instantly loved fly fishing um you know he didn't put any pressure on me you know a lot of fathers want the son to follow in the footsteps and put a little bit too much pressure on and the kids back off from from that passion but i i just fell in love with fly fishing and uh, so it was only a it was a very very natural course for me to stay in the fly fishing industry and somehow but also i i found my true passion was was teaching i absolutely love teaching and talking and and seeing people progress and so when he started to teach me how to teach fly fishing as well as how to fly fish then i i knew what my destiny was i gave up i didn't go to college i gave up my college uh plan was actually to go to um to be an air force pilot in the uh, royal air force in a way but this long college and, and, and officer school planned out for me for, for what I was going to be. But boy, at the age of 15, when he said, you know what, son, you know, just go and teach fly fishing with me and, and give up on your school and your education. And I said, heck yeah. <laughs> so that was it. I mean, your, your videos that, that you guys are doing, you know, those uh, videos at, at Rio and um, uh, you know, they're just amazing. You know, the way that you are, you, you're teaching it very simply to people and, I'm sure you're inspiring all kinds of people to get into fly fishing, which is awesome, especially for us uh, fly shop folks, you know, that own fly shops and stuff. It's been fantastic. Um, well, I think you, 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 like anything you do, whether it's playing the guitar or fishing or teaching, you learn what works and what doesn't work. And certainly as a, as a kid, I obviously had no idea. I loved teaching, but I didn't, I wasn't receptive enough to, to think, of other ways of teaching. I always thought there was, this was the way and everybody should do it this way. And, you know, you learn that and, and you learn how to teach and you learn that, you know, you, you can't be dogmatic about things, but if, if you create a dogma in this stuff, it becomes a barrier to a lot of people. I think it becomes uh, more intimidating if you make it open and friendly and just very casual about 
but yes. with some good and key points, I think it appeals more. So it's nice to hear that you that you've seen that kind of stuff and you think it is pretty simple because I my goal is to make it really simple. Um, yeah. And and yet, hopefully, there's enough nuggets in there that experienced fly fishers can pick some stuff up. Yeah, it's a one of the things that I, I tell you know the the folks that work at my fly shop is that when somebody walks in the shop, you know they don't know anything. So you have to talk to them like they don't they don't know anything and and get them stoked on fly fishing. You know, that's super important. <laughs> A real hard thing, you know. You've got one big advantage, I guess, is that if people are walking into your fly shop, they have that seed of interest, so they yeah. want to learn about it. Um, but again, it's still an, it, you know, it's an intimidating place. That to me, I think, not the I wouldn't call it a barrier, but certainly a resistance yeah. is to get the non-fly fisher interested enough to go and seek out a fly shop and find out their local guides, the local fly shop, you know, how do you get them from no interest in fly fishing into that shop? Because once they go to that shop, you know, you, then it's, you're dead right. It's entirely down to you and your staff to make them feel comfortable, to make them feel not like an idiot because what do you mean you don't know what a fly is? Everyone knows. <laughs> right, and, exactly. So that, that is the onus of, of a good fly shop worker is, is, is making it a very receptive environment. And the industry has been tra- shockingly bad at that making it a an yeah. elite sport and a, a, a male dominated sport that you know minorities and, and women and kids and, and just a lot of people just are intimidated to go in because it's been dominated too long so kudos to you and your boys and staff and girls there that uh that, that environment that to make it so welcoming we need a lot more shops like that i agree you know um you've written three books on spay casting. I'm going to talk about spay casting, of course, um, here in a second. But um, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you was, um, do you have any plans to write any more books? And one, and one of the things also is, you know, I'm interested to know, is it difficult to write a book, especially yeah. on fly fishing or spay casting? I mean, is it, what's it like? It's a massive suck of time. <laughs> I thought so, yeah. For sure. So you got all that spare time. Go ahead. I mean, <laughs> you, it, it becomes easier because we have. When I wrote, first wrote a book, it was back in nineteen ninety nine or two thousand, I think, when I started writing spay casting. My wife was pregnant with um, what turned out to be our daughter, our first child. Uh, I wanted to give her space and stay away, and I just hid under the stairs with a computer and. <laughs> Uh, poured out my my thoughts on spay casting onto some sheets of paper, yeah. uh, and and so it, that was a good time. The second book I wrote, the single handed spay casting, I it was easy because I just wrote that on planes and in airports. Every time I travelled, I'd open up my laptop and bang away again, just pouring out my concepts, my ideas, what I've learned in, in casting. So I guess that part's easy, but it is unbelievable time suck. It yeah. writing easiest part I found I, I found because if you know your subject um, you know it's very easy to I, I've taught 50 years I mean, I fly for 50 years I've taught for yeah. so I don't, I've taught for since I was 15 so 35 years so you kind of know um, the uh, what you want to say and how to say it that part's easy but then then comes all the the editing and, and spell checking and then you've yeah. got to take the photos and draw the illustrations that are appropriate to it and yeah. um, I've been going through the single-handed spay casting book is uh, out of stock and out of print and the publishers contacted me probably eight months ago said that we'd like to reprint this can you update it and revise it um, and you know that has been a, that's been a six or seven month process uh, I've been absolute a lot of information I've new information I've put into the books, but it's been so, so much work to do. And it just reiterates my, my thing. I will never write another book. I just can't be. <laughs> uh, yeah. When I, but right now I just don't have the time. Yeah. You know, uh, that's interesting. Uh, you know, a lot of people that are listening right now don't know what spay casting is. 
And so, you know, if you could explain what spay casting is and a little bit about its history, um, that'd be awesome. Well, it is interesting. I mean, so spay casting, um, for those who don't know anything about spay casting, spay casting is a technique of casting a fly that really doesn't have a back cast as such. The, the, the founding member of, of family spay, if you like, would be the roll cast. So if somebody knows what a roll cast is, then they're kind of on the right planes and right tracks of what spay casting is. They're just extensions of the spay, uh, of a roll cast itself. I mean, the history of it, the, the first um, writing of, if you want, mentioning of, of the word of spay casting was in 1849. Um, there was a tiny, it wasn't a very big book, it was called Rock and Rivers, of, uh, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and the author in there talked about the spay fling or the spay throw or the spay chuck. I can't remember exactly what he called, talked about it. Um, the peculiar technique used in, on the river spay. So that's really the first mention of it. So that's, you know, that's 170 years ago, quite a long time ago. And it evolved into a form of fishing for salmon with big, long two-handed rods, 18, 21-foot length rods, really big, big rods, but with this um, binding denominator of no backcast, i.e. roll cast. So in a nutshell, it's a historical form of casting that has evolved. Every angler should do it, right? It's yeah. not the prerogative of a salmon angler to have a tree behind you because a trout angler could have a tree behind you. A, a saltwater angler on a flat could have a guide behind them. And so every, every fly fisher will hugely enhance their catching ability and their ability to fish new places by learning to spay cast, whether it's a one-handed rod for trout or a two-handed rod for salmon or a saltwater rod for, for bonefish. Right? Every angler should know the basics of bait casting. Yeah, it's, you know, there. The you just went through one of my questions was uh, the advantages, of course, and, you know, uh, that giant roll cast. I mean, how, how far do you think that people can, can spay cast? Well, like everything, right? You, 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 there's generalizations, yeah. gear, skill, conditions, um, but you know, when when you can when you can spay cast and you have the right tackle, uh, and by that I mean a line like a double taper line rather than a weight forward line, you can spay cast. Uh, I mean, you can't. You can spay cast eighty, ninety feet yeah. with no back cast, with a six or eight foot of back cast. Yeah, it's uh, it, it opens. You know, it's not a short range thing. A lot of people look at the roll cast and the roll cast is great for situations under obstruction. It's not a rate, it's not a distance thing. You know, a, a massive roll cast, a massive roll cast would be 50 feet. It's yeah. just dynamically poor energy inefficient. Um, and the roll cast is just this, this entry to spay. Once people understand spay and how to take a roll cast and improve it to become an efficient cast and, a, and has a true greatly, um, powerful D loop, if you want to use the terminology of spay casting, then, then you can just utterly open up a massive amount of distance and the ability to change directions. The biggest thing with spay casting, more than the fact it doesn't have a back cast, a roll cast doesn't change direction well, it doesn't go very far. But the spay casts do both of those with exceptional ease. So so they, they, as I said, they they open up um, a massive amount of water and opportunity to fly fishers for people who can do a spay cast. Nice. And if, I'm going to tell people out there if you guys want to see some some videos on spay casting, go to YouTube and uh, check out some of uh, Simon's uh, spay casting videos. That's where they can find them, right, Simon? Yeah, they're all on the uh, Rio products, the Rio um, YouTube channel. There's, if you're particularly interested, I mean, there's two-handed spay casting and then there's single-handed spay casting. So the majority of people listening are probably single-handed users um, yeah. rather than two-handed users. And right there, I would start with with the simple of look at how to make a roll cast. There's a video on there called uh, How to Make a Good Roll Cast. I think it's something like that. And, and that touches on the basics of a good roll cast. Because if you don't have a good roll cast, your spay casting is not going to be good. So the first step would be master a roll cast. Yeah. and then go into the spay casting techniques. 
I was reading your uh, casting champion and it been since you were a, a young, a young dude. And then you got it. <laughs> then you got into uh, competitive uh, fly fishing and we're, we're England's team captain in 2003. Um, uh, what, what I wanted to ask you was, have you seen a big change in the techniques that, that uh, some of the anglers are using in competition from then until now? Um, interesting, the way you, you phrase that, uh, because the first competition I fished, um, let's think, the first world championships I fished was in Poland in 98. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I say that because this upcoming concert season will be all about the boots and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, what is considered a new-ish technique is check-nymphing, euro-nymphing, yeah. that kind of stuff. It's yeah. all the rage right now. And a lot yeah. of people would say, oh, yeah, this is a new technique. Yeah. But I, I, I was shown that. My, me and the whole team were shown that by our Polish guide in 98 in Poland. Yeah. Six of us in the team would fish for all morning through these sets of pools. And I can't remember the numbers, but let's say the six of us had caught nine trout in the morning with streamers and dry flies and nymphs like that. And the guy that runs them said, hey, do you mind if I show you uh, how we fish locally? And of course, no, go ahead. And he showed us this Polish nymphing. And in half an hour, he whipped out 14 fish without <laughs> moving. I've heard that. I've heard that. Uh, a similar story. Yeah, for sure. It, you know, it was an eye opener. And so to me, that was a brand new technique then. Yeah. And that's not so if you took the timeline of from my competition fishing to now, yeah, right, that was you because I've always known about this Euro-nymphing and Czech-nymphing, yeah. um, nymphing Spanish, French, dry-fly, all those stuff I've learned through my years of, of angling. And I think that's one of the, the things I really, really enjoy. One of the reasons I really got into the competition fly fishing is that it would take you around the world to locations like Poland and learn these techniques which as an instructor, I then now have a knowledge. You know, yeah. I, I was an author as well. I wrote plenty of articles in the, in, in the UK and fishing magazines. And so you need that food, those new things to talk about when you write articles or when you teach to give yourself a bit of an edge. Yeah. So that was a big for me to compete was just to go to all these countries and, and learn. I learned so much. Who, back then, who were the dominant teams? Oh, still, it was still France, Poland, Czech Republic. Those uh-huh. were the three big, maybe not France in the very early days. Yeah, yeah maybe France in the early days. Uh, yeah, probably France. Spain, mm-hmm. not, not so much then. Um, 
UK pretty rubbish. The US very very poor. Um, <laughs> yeah. There was no selective um, process in those days, right? The, the UK team, we, we did have, well, I say UK, there's an English team, a Scottish team, an Irish team, a Welsh team. Yeah. We had some processes where you would um, compete, you know, seven or eight competitions a year and you'd get points for your placings and, and the best anglers in, in all of those competitions would become your team for the next European Championship. Well, first for the home international against mm-hmm. England, Scotland, and Wales. And then once you've represented the home countries twice, you could fish a European, provided you qualified. Once you fished a European and provided you qualified, you, you're eligible for the world team. So there's kind of a selection process. And in the early days, the U.S. had didn't have that. It was a, a wealthy old guy from Boston who loved fly fishing, and he just invited yeah. people along. And, you know, it was no wonder that there was no chance of the U.S. Um, doing any good in the competition fishing. Right. That has changed immensely. Now there's a selection process. Now the team is, you know, the US team does very, very well at competitions. They're, they're out there with the, with all of the, the teams, always potentially on the podium. Yeah, absolutely. So the last few years, have you seen, like, the, how have you seen the fly fishing industry? Are you, are you seeing it um, get bigger, get, get uh, more people into the sport? Um you know, just from from your uh, knowledge, you know, being with the different brands that you're with, are you seeing an increase? Are you seeing? Uh, uh, yeah, I am. An increase. Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting because um, an increase and a diversification, I would call it, because uh, again, when I I moved to the U.S. in 2001, permanently, we actually moved in '99, but got our work visa refused, so I moved back to the U.K. for a few months. So I moved out here in, in January 2001 full-time, and really there was trout fishing, and there was steelhead, of course, and so I used my salmon fishing, spay casting techniques and skills for steelhead. Uh, and there was really not much else talked about there. There was obviously saltwater fishing, but I had no access to that in, uh, in, in Idaho, to the flats. But, you know, since, since then, Things have evolved, right? The GT fishing has evolved since uh, since those early days. That's become a great fishery, whether you go over to the Seychelles or uh-huh. Christmas Island. The, the jungle fishings of Bolivia and Argentina and Brazil, you know, those are new fisheries. So people have diversified out as well as more anglers. Yes, I do think there's been more anglers. I, I, but, you know, the tackle sales show that. There's more, and we sell more lines every single year. There seems to be more people tuning into your videos and watching your videos every time I turn on and look at the numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, my general feel is yes, there's more numbers, mm-hmm. more people getting into it. Of course, since the pandemic, which obviously for most of the industry has been as, as crazy as it sounds, a kind of a blessing is that there's an awful lot of people gone out into the country and gone fishing and started buying fishing equipment. And in the last two years, the numbers of fly fishers have expanded immensely. Yes, absolutely. But even before that, I would say it was a trickle growth. Mm-hmm. Um, social media has done an awful lot to change that. It's been great. It's it's now when you go onto Facebook and Instagram, there's uh, there's there's audiences looking and engaging fishing would never have done it in, in the 1990s, 2000s. Young people, females, um, just people in in inner cities who could never go out fishing. You know, now people can learn about fishing through social media that's been i think been a tremendous asset um but again as i said the diversification the fact that all these fisheries are opening up and allowing people now to well i've I've trout fished all my life but now you know what i actually go i I keep reading about going to bahamas to fish for bonefish and 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 flights are 250 bucks and i can rent a a house on the beach for 70 dollars a night and and, i just go and people can go out and so that, to me, that's an expansion of fly fishing. It may not change the numbers of anglers, but it's an expansion. And again, I'm looking at it probably like you. I'm looking at it from the industry point of view, in crudely, in mm-hmm. sales. Right? If we have an angler who's a trout angler, they'll buy a trout line, they might buy a sinking line, they might buy a three-weight and a five-weight. That's it. But if they, if they go bone fishing, they're not going to buy an eight-weight, and then they might talk about permit and go, oh, I'm going to buy a ten-weight, and then they might go tarpon fishing. Yeah, so they, mm-hmm. 
same angle, but it's expanding the industry, uh, which the industry needs, right? The, the industries are such an important role player in, um, in just fishery access, habitat, native fish, you know, the industry voice is important. So it's, it's essential the industry has a, has a good number of people engaged in it, but also some financial power to help out where, where it's possible. In, in my area, I'm, I'm seeing a huge increase in women getting into fly fishing. Are you, are you seeing that as well? You know, it's funny. It depends where you go. Yes. Okay. Generally, absolutely. Yes. I would say. Um, so, but the reason I say that is, you know, there's this, this, the show we met, the Pasadena fly fishing show. I only did it that one year, but as you know, there's, there's the Pleasanton one, which used yeah. to be, um, I can't remember what that was called before. It's Pleasanton. Um, yeah. but anyway, there's a bunch of fly fishing shows and, um, in my job at Rio and pre pandemic, I would go to most of these fly fishing shows and we go to the one in near Boston called the Marlboro show. And you go to the New Jersey show and you go to the Atlanta show and the Seattle show and the pleasant California show, the Pennsylvania show, the Denver show. So you go to these shows and you kind of get a feel for the base of anglers there. And without doubt, you'd go to the Denver show in Colorado and you would have at least 25% of the attendees were women. Um, very passionate about it, hardcore anglers, loving the sport. You go to New Jersey or Boston and that number would shrink to quarter of a percent. You know, it's a very male-dominated sport out there for whatever reason and a much older generation. Yeah. The Somerset show would be your 60s and 70-year-old guy would be your 90% demographic that's attending the shows and in, in Denver it would be this 25-75 female male divide but the age would be 20s to to 40s very very different demographic than than in uh, the east coast are you are you teaching a lot now are you are you still are you still traveling and teaching and doing all those different shows are you are you doing yes. all that yeah that's kind of part of my new role so it's um uh, as I said, it's, it's kind of this new role, so I'm still working out what I should be doing and, and um, what I'm allowed to do. But basically, yeah, I just came back from the Denver show. I was at the Denver show two weeks ago. Okay. That's the first show in a couple of years, mostly because of the pandemic, right? We didn't want to do the show. Um, part of the job is teaching. So uh, I've set up a, a bunch of residential schools that I've kind of planned out that we're going to host one in Colorado and one in Montana as trout schools. And we're going to do one in Oregon for, for steelhead as a spay school and another one that's trout spay in Montana. And these are kind of four day residential schools that people come stay with us for four days. And it's a full on school course rather than kind of a, a guided experience. You know, there's lectures and there's um, evening lectures and morning lectures. So, this is going taking me back to my roots. This is what I did all my life from 15 to 37 or whatever year it was when I moved to America. That was my, my entire life was this and, and, and still is the biggest passion I have is, is teaching. So now to be allowed to do that again in, as part of my job is and drop in all the other stuff. Fantastic. Absolutely. Sign me <laughs> up. I'll do it. Who's as you like. What, uh, I, I missed one of my questions that I wanted to ask you was, um, you know, living in the UK and then moving to the U S what was that like? I mean, that, that's a full, that's a full different set of uh, culture type of a thing. I mean, how, how did that, how did that work out for you? Yeah. Well, the simple answer to that is I moved to the U S on a three year contract, very keen to do three years in America. I just got married. Uh-huh. Uh, let's move to America for a couple of years signed this contract with Rio for three years with every intention to go back to my fishing school in England. Okay. Never did. Never uh, did. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, so it's been very good to me. I, I've, I've, uh, I've loved it. I, what I, the biggest difference, which doesn't amaze me in any capacity at all, but still seems to amaze a lot of people in the UK, almost all fishing is privately owned. Right. And so the act hard part. Right. Um, you can buy day tickets. Um, there's, there's people who own a piece of river 
who will advertise in the local paper. You know, fishing tickets available, £10 a day. Uh, come to the dog and pony pub and buy a ticket. Yeah. So you can get there, but you have to pay for it. There's no very, very little free fishing. You can fish, fish for free in the sea, but in freshwater, it's very little free fishing. So one of the biggest eye-openers, obviously, for me, because I just hadn't experienced anything but that wherever I fished in Europe, mm-hmm. was that you, you mean I can just go and fish that lake or that <laughs> piece of river? I don't have to buy a license or pay anybody for it. I mean, you got to buy a license, but pay anybody for the yeah, access, right? So yeah. the fact that there's just so much fishing available, um, I, I think people, Americans take that for granted, and they don't really understand how different that is in the in, in Europe and UK in particular and it is not something to be taken for granted at all. That is a massive blessing for anybody to have the amount of free access and free fishing you guys have over here. It's incredulous. It is. It's amazing, isn't it? It's so cool. It really is. So do you I, have... mean, I mean it's side because there's no doubt that uh at hex time, for example, when the hexes are hatching out on my local lake or in prime steelhead time or in Henry's Fork, when I lived in Idaho in the opener of Henry's Fork, you would turn up, as would 300 other people. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I really missed the the private fishing I had in the UK um, because as part of the school my dad had and then I took over from him when he retired, we had to have fishing. Right? You can't have a fishing school without fishing. So we rented about 15 miles of rivers in our local area. Uh, and so when they weren't being used by guests, I should just go and fish. Oh. And I'm the other, you know, so I had the access. I was fortunate because that was my life, um, and my livelihood. So I, I do sometimes regret the fact that, oh my God, I'm the 93rd person down the steelhead run today, or <laughs> this brown yeah. trout has been 600 other anglers in the last week. Uh, I, I like the privilege I had. So it's kind of, you know, yin and yang. It's good both ways. Do you have a favorite river in the U.S. that you like to fish? No, I, I don't because I, it's like when people ask me what's your favorite species or what's your favorite destination, yeah. I love the sport of fly fishing. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you on that. <laughs> Absolutely. It doesn't matter, does it? <laughs> no, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. I mean, I love my local river here, the Lewis. Yeah. Uh, I love Henry's Fork, I love the South Fork of the Canyon. I love all the rivers I fish in Montana. I, I, wherever I fish, I, I, I just adore the fact that the waters are clean enough and healthy enough to sustain a trout population. So when we're talking about trout or steelhead, yeah. um, and that's what, that's what I like about it, is the fact that it gets me out to these beautiful areas that are away from concrete and petroleum. Exactly. I hear you're uh, hosting trips now. I, I think I read that somewhere or saw it on Instagram. You're hosting trips to different places. Are you hosting any coming up anywhere? Yeah. Yeah. Again, another part of this new role, again, the engagement part, right? It's, um, uh, it'd be inter- interesting to see. We had one scheduled to go down to Tierra de Fuego in January. Uh, that was a fiasco because the lodge we were heading to tested, all the guests tested positive for COVID. What, and I got the phone call as I was about to board the plane to Buenos Aires. Uh-huh. So I flew to BA and, and hung around there for a bit and then flew home. So that trip didn't happen. And then I go to Belize in a couple of weeks' time. I'm hosting a trip to Belize, taking five guys out there to to just, um, you know, host, really, just to be there to, to tell stories, to help people with knots, to help people with casting. Not a class as such, not like these other ones I talked about earlier, which are structured classes. These are, hey, I'm just there to help. I'm going to bring a bunch of stage rods and Reddington rods and Rio lines, and if you want to use those, good. I'm going to be there to help you with a nod. If you want to learn the double hole, hey, one evening let's go out, take a Bellican beer and do some double holding. And <laughs> kind of that, um, which is great. And then the big one I've got, my favorite one is Alaska for the King Salmon in the middle of June. It's, you know, this is the fourth year I've done it, and it's still one of my favorite fisheries of all, my favorite trips. I, I've done it myself in the past, but now I've turned it into a hosted trip and taking people to, to experience these crazy giant kings to eating a swan fly. Really? That sounds fun. What, what river is <laughs> that on? Uh, that one's on the Connectock, which oh. is up by 
area of Bethel. You fly into Bethel from Anchorage. Yeah, awesome. I'm finally getting a chance to go uh, try for my first permit uh, in April. So I'm um, going, da- going down to Ishalak, uh, Mexico. Mexico, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And That'd be- I know. I'm looking forward to it. It's um, bonefish, permit, schnook, um, jacks, that- and... Ooh. I mean, I've, I've never, I've never caught, uh, uh, a permit. So that'll be, it'll be a lot of fun. It's, it's, you know, I hope you come back and caught one because yeah. boy, they're, well, and then I don't, because that thing is so flicking addictive <laughs> that you will be, and you blow all your cash on permit. <laughs> any, any advice you can give me for a, for a permit? Uh, the general advice for permit is, is uh, like steelhead, be prepared to not catch anything. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that so, too, yes. Uh, but the essential part is like any fishing, like you would say to anybody who came to your shop and say, well, how, be, how do I become a good angler? You've got to be a good caster. Yeah. You know, you've got to be able to present your fly. Permit are so, so notoriously spooky that if you if you can't make a seventy foot cast with a nine weight and and land it within a a, a meter, say you know, three feet of, uh-huh. your chances are going to be very very slim. So mm-hmm. there's no other tip. Then you, then it's just in the laps of the gods or just lady luck and, <laughs> and um, it tips up and takes the fly or tips up and then bolts. Yeah, sounds fun. I'm, I can't wait. You know, I yes, guess. You- oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Did you? No, I oh. do great. Yeah. Um, oh, thanks. Well, I have, um, I just have one more question for you. And, oh, okay. and um, I just wanted to ask you if you, this is just a question that I get asked to sometimes is um, if you had one last trip you could go on, where would it be? Who would it be with and why? Well, there's that. <laughs> it's a good one, huh? You know, it's, I do get asked that, and I just never have an answer because I, I personally I struggle between page one, which is go back to something I've really loved and mm-hmm. do it again, yeah. or page two, go and do something I've never done. Yeah. Um, and so of the go back and do something I've done, I would probably choose the Dean River for Steelhead in British Columbia. I've heard that one or, too. That's awesome. Yeah. I might choose a connect top for these kings because I just absolutely love that fishery. Or I might choose to go to Cuba again and, and, and hunt permit and tarpon in Cuba. I love all of that. But then again, New Zealand was fantastic. <laughs> Ron Brown Trout and Sierra de Fuego. I mean, those are all duns that I just can't pick one. If they are on page two of the never done, well, I'd be torn again. I mean, I'd be torn between the jungles and doing the Dorado and Peacock Bass in the Amazon jungle or going to the Seychelles and targeting the GTs, maybe go to Oman and hit the GTs and the Queens. <laughs> yeah, there's so what many. A, I love it. That's so yeah, I just, I, I, there's too many. There's, I just, as, as I said earlier, I love fly fishing and I love that experience. Um I miss my home river, my home little trout river, the River Bray. I would mm-hmm. love to go back and fish that. So, tough one. I just I don't know how I can answer it in, in any way. Is there is there a certain person or people that you'd want to go with? How do you do that? Uh, yeah, number one would be my son. You know, I, he, nice. he comes to Neck Talk. You know, I, I love fishing with him. He's not uh, a keen fly fisher mm-hmm. uh, in any capacity. He loves our annual trip to the connect talk to, to Fisher Kings. And, um, that's all he does, but it's a, just a wonderful experience. So I, I feel very privileged that he wants to do that. I mean, he would be, I, I would love it if my wife or, and all my daughter came, but they don't have any interest in fishing. Um, other than that, well, yeah, of course, you know, uh, who wouldn't want to fish with all the great legends that are around and the great casters that are around. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of, Name. I, I did a lot of casting with Mel Krieger in his day. I, I would love to have fished with him. He was such a great person to be around and great company, such one of the most incredible instructors I've ever met with a just a humility that was fantastic and an easy, easy way of teaching. I'd love to have fished with him. 
again, sorry. I, that's okay. <laughs> I have yeah, that's that sounds great. Um, yeah, what what a great great, great guy. I learned from Mel as well, and uh, ah. what, a, what a great guy. My gosh. Yeah. Okay. So, what if I flip that around? Do you have somebody you would say yes? I would like to fish with you. <laughs> well, <laughs> absolutely. Love to go fishing okay. with you sometime. We'll have to. We'll have to make. We'll have to make that happen for sure. You know, one. I have long heard about the golden trout, which I've never caught. Oh, and that is something that is definitely in my top ten of species lists and destinations in, in anywhere in the world that I've not fished for. So, the, the best way to make that happen is I just need to come down to see you and and go up and fish your local waters. Absolutely. You got, a, you got a place to crash. Uh, it, it's right here where we're at. You know, we have, we have, uh, you know, three native species here, the Kern River rainbow and the golden trout and another one called the little Kern golden trout in our area. And, oh. um, all those, um, are amazing places to go. They're, they're just, um, beautiful, beautiful streams. And of course the Kern river is beautiful and it would be, it would be fun to show you around for sure. Oh, well, I would love that. That sounds like, what's a good time of year? Let's, um, you know, if you can come up in uh, July or, you know, any any time, you know, just the runoff is usually in May. So that would be a a tough time to to, uh, do the Kern. But the Golden Trout, of course, um, May, June, July, August, September, all that stuff is all good during that time for sure. Well, that's good to know because, uh, you know, July and August is usually a dog, couple of dog months for a, a, most of the places I fish. Way yeah. too hot in Washington. And, I mean, it's not dog in Idaho. You get the, the uh, P&D hatches and the, uh, the hopper hatches later on in the summer. So they're good. It's just brutal, 100 degrees. That heat, my English skin can't take that. Uh, so <laughs> I, I not fish much in July or August, but... Uh, Good to know that the fishing is good down there with you at that time of year. Oh, for sure. And we, sure. we, we also got uh, smallmouth bass in the lower kern and, and largemouth bass. And, you know, come try that too. It's a lot of fun topwater stuff. And Yeah. Know. Well, I've done a little bit of small water, smallmouth bass fishing. Not much, just a little bit when I used to work uh, in the early days of moving to America when I worked for TNT and we'd go out there and um, visit the factory and fish around there. But I've never, I've never fished a largemouth, and that's another thing on my list that I really, really must do one day. You know, the golden trout's all small, small rod stuff. You know, one, two, maybe three, yeah. weight, three weight stuff. Super fun. All, all but, dry, dry fly stuff. Oh, geez, my my home river in England was a <laughs> six foot six inch three weight rod for a trout that would be big, would be ten inches. Yeah, exactly. That's about the same here, for sure, on those little streams. Well, si- mm. Simon, what a pleasure, my friend, and. And, uh, it's, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And I want to say one thing is, you know, I want to thank you for all that you've done for the fly fishing world, man. I mean, there's so many people that have learned from you and, um, and have gotten to experience your, your knowledge and that sort of thing. So thank you. Um, not only from me, from everybody, I'm sure. Well, that's all unbelievably nice to say. I, I just open my mouth and spout out stuff. <laughs> 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 right on well thank you simon and um we will catch you next time and I, i'm looking forward to going fishing with you for sure we'll make that happen Let, let's absolutely plan on that i i don't think this year i have so many schools and trips coming up in july and august but if, if we can plan something for next year i would be all over that let's do it man all right all right i love it all right simon gosworth thank you so much take care everybody thanks, thanks guy appreciate thank- that good chat yeah, good chatting with you. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.